Today, China feels chided by the outgoing U.S. administration's stance on Taiwan. Next, we mull over how social media has turned on Donald Trump and what this might mean for freedom of speech in the U.S. Last up, we hear a fairy tale of sorts from New York, where our amusing misfit of a correspondent attempts, mostly unconvincingly, to live like a normal human being. Monocle's editors tackle those fair topics today on the late edition here on Monocle 24. Do stay tuned. Hello and a warm welcome to The Late Edition. I'm Josh Fenner, joined on this fine Friday evening by Monocle's editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. And from his moated castle lair in the hinterlands of North London, surrounded by hordes of screaming children, our head of radio, Tom Edwards. Um, Tom, great to have you here, sort of. Um, When you mentioned you'd be doing some remote working, um, I thought you'd be watching TV, but here you are on the radio, another medium. How the devil are you? Not too bad at all, uh, Josh. Yeah, what I said was when you asked me if I was going to be working, I said not remotely and you've completely misconstrued what I said. But yeah, let's let's give it our best shot this fine Friday evening. And um, I should apologise for listeners for the echo that is unmistakably only found in a toilet there on that uh, broadcast. Not quite sure of the uh, the recording setup. Um, Andrew, it's been the first full working week of an already eventful 2021. How are you holding up? Well, you certainly kind of need to have nimble dance feet to get through this year already. We, we returned and were hit by complete lockdown uh, across uh, England. So I must say nearly everybody is not here. They're, they're in their homes, in their various bedrooms and lounges. Well. And, and, and as, as Tom is, I'm not sure if he's in the bathroom at this moment. I hope not. <laughs> um, but uh, we've coped with that. And uh, we've uh, had the key team here to do radio, to get things out, to hold, you know, hold things together. I don't know. I, uh, we've done it once. We've done it twice, actually. Um, and I feel pretty confident that we will, we, we will get through this because of our readers and listeners and because of our team. We, we, know, we know how to articulate what we're thinking and, and address many of their concerns as well. So I feel reasonably positive. But, hey, it's like you know, we've, we've had Brexit. You know, we have this ongoing. We had, what, a week in America. You know, DC put on a bit of a party for us. Uh, so it, I think people, they, they, it just takes more strength to get through each week, a little bit more kind of uh, energy. We're going to start today's show in East Asia, where China has its hackles up over the US ambassador to the UN, Kelly Craft's planned trip to Taiwan. Trump's implied support for Taiwan is raising eyebrows in Beijing, which released a statement suggesting that the administration is playing with fire. And we all know what happens when you play with fire. The secessionist island remains a flashpoint for conflict between China and the US, according to Isabel Hilton, and she's the CEO of China Dialogue. Earlier, she told Monocle about whether Beijing should expect much change as President-elect Joe Biden comes into office later this month. If China's expecting anything from, different from Biden, they're not, they're not reading the tea leaves. You know, Biden has explicitly uh, written that he intends to deepen ties with Taiwan. He called it a leading democracy, a major economy, a technology powerhouse, and a shining example of how an open society can effectively contain COVID-19. None of those are soothing words for Beijing. And, and there's no reason to believe that he didn't mean, him, mean them. Uh, I think, you know, given Biden's plan, Plans to to organise a, a kind of convention of democracies. One thing to watch out for would be whether Taiwan 
would be included in the invitation list. Um, other things that Biden can do that Trump wouldn't do um, is to try to get Taiwan included in uh, multilateral efforts on disease control, for example. Taiwan has great expertise in this. Now, given that Trump didn't believe in alliances or multilateral action, that 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 kind of whole area of activity was was pretty much off limits to him. But it's very much available to Biden. Isabel Hilton there talking on Monocle 24 a little earlier. Um, Tom, I'm going to come to you first. Um, It's been an interesting week uh, with China's refusal to allow World Health Organization officials into the country to investigate the origins of the virus, which kind of shows a lack of willingness to uh, play by the rules of multilateralism. Might there be a bit of a chance for a reset under Biden? Isabel Hilton doesn't seem to think so, but surely it won't be as bad as, as, as under Donald Trump with the trade war. Uh, no, I think that's right. And I think that Biden will be interested in trying to build alliances around the world. He'll be interested uh, in meaningful uh, meaningful action rather than gestures when it comes to his attitude towards Beijing. I think the only reason I would slightly disagree with Isabel is that whilst indeed uh, Biden has talked a good game about um, Taiwan and as, as an exemplar and he's underscored his, his belief fundamentally in multilateralism as a way to sort of do diplomacy globally, the elephant in the room is COVID. It's exactly what Andrew said. It's setting the agenda for us. And that is the problem that Biden faces. His domestic problems are so extreme and they've arguably been deepened, haven't they, by what we've seen this week. That I think he's just gonna he's gonna have to shelve even his well-intentioned uh, foreign policy plans and adventures for for at least twelve at least twelve sort of eighteen months, and then frankly, you know, I think he'll be thinking more at that stage about how the democratic movements begins to look to the future, you know, per- perhaps under Kamala Harris. So I think we might see a Biden still making the right noises about this sort of international engagement, but essentially being hamstrung for completely different reasons than Trump, but nevertheless still rather hamstrung from actually moving that agenda forwards. And Andrew, has public sentiment towards China maybe shifted a little bit? If we think certainly in terms of UK politics a few years ago, there was a pivot to China. It was all about investment. And as we look um, at the moment, there's the hampering of 5G networks, moves against Huawei. Um, And also, um, as I mentioned um, in the question to Tom uh, about not letting the World Health Organization crew into China, any transparency about how the virus may have uh, come about. Is there a shift in public sentiment? And is that enough to worry China, do you think? Uh, I don't think they really care about public sentiment around the world. Of course, you know, every country likes to be liked, likes to think it has some soft power prowess. But when you look at what's happened just in the recent days in Hong Kong, for example, there you have a, a prime example of where Hong Kong tramples over people's liberty and, and, and doesn't really care whether the world harumps or not. It has its own agenda. And I think that for Biden, the problem is you know, that... The Chinese economy continues to grow at such a pace that it gives it this kind of leverage within the region to kind of do its own thing. It doesn't really respond to outside criticism, whether that's what's happening to the Muslim Uyghur people, whether that's what's happening to human rights, that they go their own way. I think what's the strange, weird bit between Trump and Biden... And I think you, there you, sh- you need to step back away from the politics. You know that what Trump 
recognised was a, a genuine thing when he came into power, which was, you know, that the in many ways Western democracies had tried to cosy up to China to kind of win it over to its side, like being you know the new best friend, and it didn't work as an act because it was it was taken of you know, advantage was taken by by China. So you know Trump was right to push back a bit and say, look, hold on, this these trade relationships we have uh, uh, don't seem that equitable to us. You know, the, the the taking of intellectual property by China doesn't seem fair. And militarily, we've turned a blind eye to, to what's going on. We need, we need to stand up a little bit. So on that side, Trump was right. On the Biden side, you, you would imagine that he, he would agree with much of that. But then the nub of it is, what will you ultimately do about it? And here, you know, both Trump was pleased to is is pleased and proud of the fact that he's he's ending his term with no wars going on, really involving Americans, uh, soldiers on the ground around the world. He's been quick to pull uh, troops out of Western Europe, out of Afghanistan. I don't think there's an appetite in America to go to war with China. So for Biden to play a really hardball game and go up to the, you know, right up to the line and say, look, you know, if you mess us around in the Pacific or if you encroach on territory that we think belongs to Japan, if you endanger Taiwan, we are literally going to step in militarily and defend these places. Then I think, you know, again, he would be he would be stuffed because there, there just is not the appetite in America for that kind of involvement. And then your, 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 your narrow victory quickly fractures and disappears. And it's a story that we're going to be covering across Monocle 24 in all of its facets as it plays out, particularly with the arrival of Joe Biden and the new administration. But next, we're going to be talking tech. This week, Facebook and Instagram took the unprecedented step of banning President Donald Trump on their platforms after his rally in Washington this week saw the state capitol stormed, which resulted in five deaths. So, is this the frank admission that social media platforms are responsible for the content that they publish? Is it a rowback by big tech on their long-maintained fallback of freedom of speech no matter what? Or an admission that social media is in some part responsible for the polarisation of politics? Lots of questions. We'll try and get you some answers, perhaps. Earlier, Josh Coles, researcher at the University of Oxford's Internet Institute, succinctly explained the issues on The Globalist on Monocle24. Clearly, the wider set of issues which are provoked by Trump's rise and the extent to which Trump is a symptom more than a cause of deep-seated issues within um, the American populace, those are going to be really hard to challenge. Um, things like the fact that um, so many people who get uh, radicalized and activated by uh, QAnon groups and other things like that on, on Facebook are recommended to follow or to subscribe to those groups by Facebook's own algorithm. The fact that disinformation of the sort which... Um, persuaded people that Trump Trump's victory was being stolen uh, was spread on these social media platforms. So it really is a wake-up call uh, for, uh, for social media platforms. But to be honest, the alarm has been going off for many years now. Josh Coles there speaking on The Globalist on Monocle 24 a little earlier. Andrew, how important do you think this decision from Facebook and from Twitter also is? Banning communications from an elected world leader seems like quite a big and momentous step particularly for firms that have often seen themselves as sort of blank platforms or or kind of billboards for other people's opinions, they've started to sound a bit more like publishers, really, haven't they? They've started to have to make some kind of editorial decisions. Well, there's so many constituents pressing against these companies. First of all, we have to remember that these businesses tend to sit in liberal cities where their headquarters are. They're full of staff who have got to the end of their tether, often with their employers, who are finding it 
I don't know, just just not tolerable to work for a company that puts up with hate speech, which 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 encourages racist views. So they're pushing against their owners, and then out in in the wider world, we're beginning to see the consequences of this. And the the actions of Donald Trump this week, you know, led to violence, led to people being killed. Now. We'll see what happens in the coming days, whether anyone dares to do anything about it. But I think they just find themselves in a, in a, in a, in a very complicated position and they're having to take some responsibility because everybody is so incensed, whether they'll ultimately act like publishers and, and start kind of really vetting what goes on. Because the problem for them is, you know, to be fair to them, there's just so much of it. And, and despite how many people you have trying to be gatekeepers, it's very easy to get stuff through because for Donald Trump, so he he if he loses his accounts on any of these platforms, surely you know he's got a few sons who might post what Donald Trump thinks, or you know a daughter, or you know other people in his cabinet who might back him up and and post things for him. It doesn't really silence anybody. He may not have been delighted that he couldn't respond so quickly, but it doesn't stop him. So it's, this is going to be problematic and painful and difficult for a long, long time. But I think it does show some of the. the the, the growing cracks in the, the preeminence of these social media brands. And Tom, talking about growing cracks, um, big big tech is in the crosshair of regulators across the world. Uh, it's the subject of antitrust cases. How important is a decision like this for their kind of PR, I guess their role in society? They, they will be seen by many liberal people to have, to have taken a positive step and also... On the on the other side, by many supporters of Trump, to have um, to have censored or silenced uh, an elected world leader, how, how do you read this? I mean, in in anyone's opinion, it's quite a big shift. Well, it's certainly a really challenging moment, and I think you know, frankly, I welcome a bit of you know. Some people may dismiss it as being heavy-handed or censorious, but I actually welcome the idea of just being slightly more circumspect, a bit more guarded. I think it was refreshing to see people erring on the side of caution and saying, look, if in doubt, just switch these bilge pumps off for a moment and, and draw breath. And I know that it's a bit of a, um, a, a, a narrative that we come back to often at Monocle, which is just trust proper editorial process and instead of just echo chambers and white noise, I mean, it's so so hackneyed, this phrase, but... I think it is important to go to platforms, voices that have some consideration, and that might be that they have technical or uh, sector-relevant expertise. It could just be that they have an editorial process that's robust and somebody's there with a red pen and they're actually assessing what's being what's being said. I, I think, you know, we're, we're so far past the time when we can just say, look, you know, this is the ultimate expression of democratic, um, you know, free speech, etc. People have to understand their actions have consequences. And it's rather rich when the elected leader of the free world can't grasp that concept, but maybe this has nudged him even into that in that direction. I, I think it's sensible, and I think you know we we talked we spoke before about whether these tech companies could get away with saying, "Oh, well, we're just a platform," you know, we're not actually a a, a media, you know, we're, we're not a media brand, but these people are. They are fulfilling a role that newspapers, radio, television used to fulfil exclusively, and they need to adhere to some of the same standards. I think it's an important step. I don't know if it'll be enough, but it's a step in a, a very small step in the right direction, in my view. 
I tend to agree with you, Tom, because a lot of the ways in which these companies profit, uh, you know, they profit from people uh, doing journalism that costs money. And they should have, I think, and I feel you think as well, some responsibility for what they publish. Finally, today we'll turn to the Big Apple, where Monocle's New York correspondent, Henry Reese Sheridan, is struggling to understand the modern world yet again and for some reason, sharing his faltering experiences of human contact with us. Go on then, Henry, take it away. It was my first Yuletide season in the new apartment. There are two other flats in our building. Next to us, on our floor, lives our landlord's brother and his family. They have lived in the area for many years and are indisputably part of the community. They might even be pillars of the community. Above us lives a young professional couple. They moved in a few months after we did, and I regard them as a menace, the embodiment of everything that threatens our quaint but rapidly gentrifying neighbourhood. These people are demographically indistinguishable from me, which makes them the ideal canvas to project my self-loathing onto. I have completely failed to establish a relationship with any of my neighbours. When I moved in last March, I left a bottle of wine outside each apartment as a friendly gesture to announce my arrival. The people who lived upstairs at the time immediately guzzled the plonk and thanked us for it. But it was a different story with my landlord's brother next door. He left his wine untouched on his doorstep for many days, an inordinate number of days. Every time I stepped into the hallway, I would see the bottle languishing beside his welcome mat. Initially I assumed the family were away, but then I noticed other objects outside the door, like shoes and packages, coming and going, and realised they must be home. After about a week the bottle disappeared. I got no acknowledgement of receipt from my neighbour. To this day I don't know if the wine was taken into his apartment or unceremoniously emptied into the gutter outside without ever having crossed the threshold. In summary, I have a civil but at arm's length relationship with both of my neighbours and I've had a strange wine standoff with the one directly next door who, as I've mentioned, is a community member. Nonetheless, I resolve to take the 2020 to 2021 festive season as an opportunity to thaw relations and spread goodwill to all persons in my building. I'll get each household a gift, and despite the fraught history I've recounted, I can't think of anything less offensive and broader in its appeal than wine. I walk to the local fancy wine store. The store assistant eyeballs me as I enter. I don't wait to be greeted. Give me the most generic red wine you have, I say. The attendant, barely able to conceal their contempt, reaches for a pricey organic Cabernet Sauvignon. And keep it south of $20, I add, before they've even touched the Sauvignon. I inevitably opt for two bottles of the cheapest red in the shop. Luckily, the wine still looks expensive because it has a Rococo label. Can I help you with anything else? Snarks the attendant, placing the bottles in separate bags at my request. Just give me the wine, you miserable enophile, I snap and storm out. 
On the way back from the wine store, my eye is caught by an anti-gentrification sticker affixed to a lamppost. Are you joining the community, it asks, or displacing it? The question is aimed flatly at me, and I'm not going to take it lying down. I square up to the lamppost and shake my wine at it, a bottle in each hand. What does it look like to you, lamp boy? I spit. I turn and trudge the rest of the way home without looking back. I get back to the apartment and write a generic holiday greeting on two little cards that I affix to the wine bags using fetching purple paper clips. I tiptoe into the corridor and leave them outside my neighbour's doors. I make sure I leave the one for my landlord's brother in the line of sight of the peephole in my apartment door. Then I retreat into my dwelling and spend no longer than 45 minutes peeping through my peephole, monitoring the bottle. Nothing happens. I would peep for longer, but I have to research local LED light bulb disposal facilities. I become so absorbed in the task, I lose track of time. My focus is broken only when I hear shuffling outside my door. I jump out of my seat and fling the door open, only to find a box of chocolates where my doormat would be if I had one. The card attached to the box confirms my wildest dreams have materialised. The chocolates are from my landlord's brother. I see that the bottle I left outside his door has disappeared. The festive quid pro quo has been fulfilled. The weirdness of the last wine gift has been absolved and the community has been officially joined by me. I run to the lamppost by the wine store and begin frantically picking at the offending sticker with my freezing cold digits, hell-bent on removing it, as is my right. Two women speaking Polish give me an even wider berth than is recommended by the Centre for Disease Control. Repelling passers-by in a foreign land, I finally feel accepted. Monocle's Henry Rees Sheridan in New York there with a refreshingly absurd glimpse into his odd, strange, unusual life. Um, He was talking a bit about neighbours there, Andrew. Um, And I think um, we have to acknowledge that we are in a lockdown, but you've actually had some more positive experience um, over the course of lockdowns and opening ups where you've met your neighbours perhaps for the first time, uh, spent a bit more time with them, seen them chucking things out of windows at midnight. Um, Have you got any tales from the neighbourhood that you'd like to share with the class? Well, I don't want to give too much away. But there's there's a, a, bit, a, a bit of a more downbeat woman who's going to be in my column tomorrow, which is you know the uh, the two people who live opposite us uh, and have been very close to us throughout the entire period of, of this uh, of, of this virus. They they got in their car on Monday and they left and everyone waved them goodbye and and they're gone because like many people in the city, you know, she worked as a, a hairdresser job keeps being shuttered there is no point staying around his company has decided that it's it, there's no point having people back in the office maybe this year so he decided that they they shouldn't be paying city rents because why stay in the city when there's nothing open so they've headed to devon so there's a, a key part of your you know, your network that goes but you know we've had a very tight network and at the beginning of this they were fundamental to it you know it was like people would come into the street sit distanced have a drink wave to each other do all those positive things and we've been a very very tight street and some of that continues but last night there was a supposedly a reintroduction of this clap for carers uh business that we did the first time round, which is you, you come out to clap in support of healthcare workers 
I didn't hear a single sound. I don't think anybody... You know, we, we used to hear people banging pots and, and getting out on the streets. People are just tired and and also the consequences are, are more complicated at this time because you know while they're concerned about the people in in healthcare you know they do see you know and it's harshly they, they do see some of those people beginning to be vaccinated and and they're not and meanwhile they're losing their jobs and their their worries are closer to home and i don't think that people are uh, in a mood for clapping anybody they just want to freaking get through this thing and get out on the other side so I think we are cohesive. We 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 care for um, careful is, is the wrong word. We 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 offer little bits of help to uh, an elderly guy who lives in our road, uh, but who is as live <laughs> more lively than me and has better, got got a bit of social circle and, and can hold his booze better as well. But so we we but we are going to continue those things. But neighbours, yeah, it's it's important. And Tom, uh, time was um, if an urchin scurried across your lawn, you'd have released the hounds. Um, and I know that social distancing is in order as well. But um, has there been any sense of uh, camaraderie, of neighbourliness um, up in um, Newcastle or wherever it is you live? <laughs> yeah, it's just slightly further south than that, Josh. No, absolutely. I think I, I recognise Andrew's experience. People rallied around one another. And it is just often a small gesture. It's just the fact of having that very visible experience of someone sharing your day-to-day travails and that can be the good moments few and far between as they may have been and and the bad ones and it is it is that thing about you know that 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 kind of civic spirit that that feeling of a shared experience i was quite struck as well just as andrew was by the absence of that collective outpouring on thursday night and i i recognize andrew's diagnosis i think it's exactly right you know if you look at that weird wartime analogy Sure, you know, health workers and teachers and delivery drivers, they're very much engaged still at the front line. But everybody, it's like three, four, five years into a war that, you know, we were told would be over by Christmas. It's sapped everybody's abilities to, to, to even, you know, take part in these important moments. I think people are looking to get their, their relief elsewhere, often at the bottom of a glass. I think I recognise that from Andrew's words as well. But look, yeah, neighbour neighbours, neighbourhoods has never been more important. And, and again, I like the fact that comes back. It's really underscored some things that we're pretty evangelical about on Monocle 24 and at, and at Monocle since its inception, which is that, you know, you can make a difference to the world in however small a way if you look right outside your right outside your doorstep and it, it's never been more important to do that. Happiness at the bottom of a glass. Finally, an explanation for the unusual echo from Tom's bathroom broadcast there. Um, sadly, that's all the time we have on today's late edition. Big thank you to Andrew Tuck and Tom Edwards in London and to all of our editors, guests, correspondents, everyone around the world, really. Thanks a lot. Our producer, Augustin Machilari, has also singled himself out rather modestly for some praise here and our studio manager, Louis Allen. Well done, Louis. Thanks to everyone for listening. Have a great Friday evening and a wonderful weekend.